In our current gender culture, women are always put on pedestal for being the guardians of morality or honor. It's always a conflict of different ways of imagining women in our society, and sometimes they can be in conflict with each other. You know, the screen is a panel that blocks what's behind it. Girls in different positions, girls in different companies, they're all trying to help out. Uncover, unmask, understand. You're listening to Uncover, I'm Joyce. Uncover is dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are affected by the COVID-19 outbreak in and beyond China. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We're also on WeChat with the name Uncover Yizhongren. Our website is uncoverinitiative.home.blog. Again, that's uncoverinitiative.home.blog. Since early February, we have been translating and producing contents of personal narratives, interviews, conversations, and opinion pieces by sharing people's experiences and perspectives of the outbreak as well as its social impact. We hope to promote awareness and solidarity across cultural boundaries. In this very first episode of our show, we present you a conversation that took place on March 8th, the International Women's Day. This was an online panel discussion organized by the Office of Diversity Initiatives of Shanghai New York University, and it's named "Women in the Time of Coronavirus: Action, Contribution, and Media Representation." We had three guest panelists. They were Alex Lee. Editor in Chief of Be the Girls, Sakura Chen, founder of Girls Up Shanghai, and Wang Jing, a postdoctoral fellow at NYU Shanghai. I was the moderator, and together we shared our observations and thoughts on the COVID-19 outbreak through the lens of gender. Starting with the neglected needs of female medical workers on the front line, the panelists had a discussion on gender culture, media representation, civil society, and other social issues that intersect with gender. They also talked about the projects they initiated during the outbreak. So, welcome to our online panel: Women in the Time of Coronavirus. Action, contribution, and media representation. This event is organized by the Office of Diversity Initiatives of NYU Shanghai. My name is Joyce Tan, and I will be the moderator for today's event. Thank you so much for joining us on this special day, and happy International Women's Day. Today, we are very honored to have three wonderful panelists with us. They are Alex Lee from BIE Biede, Sakura Chen from Girls Up Shanghai. And our very own Wang Jing from NYU Shanghai. This outbreak has been much more than just a health issue. It's really a window through which we have come to see and discuss a wide range of social, economic, cultural, political, and policy issues. In this epidemic, we see many new problems and challenges. But at the same time, a lot of the problems we see have long existed, but perhaps overlooked. Previously, and this outbreak has brought our attention to those issues in different ways and made them more noticeable and prominent. And we are able to see them in a new 
light and discuss them in a new way. And among those issues are gender issues, gender biases and gender inequality, which is what we want to talk about today. So today, by focusing on um, women in the time of coronavirus, we're not only looking at what women have done, what role they play and the challenges they face in the outbreak, we're also looking at how they are represented and um, what does that representation say and how the Chinese public respond to that representation. So now without further ado, let me invite Alex, Sakura, and Jing to quickly introduce themselves. So your background, what you do, and also what's your past experience working on gender-related topics. And let's start with Alex. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Joyce. Thanks for having me. So I'm Alex. My background is in gender and sexuality studies. Since 2017, I've been back in Beijing working as an editor for Bieda. Well, previously Vice China. Now we've rebranded to Bieda. And I run this uh, vertical channel called Bieda Girls. So, sorry, it's my cat. Literally means other girls. It's known as a woman's platform but our focus is really more on gender we don't really, we don't just talk about women's topics we talk about a whole range of topics from the lens of gender so you can find us on wechat weibo and podcast so yeah the podcast is called beer and sing it's on various uh, podcast channels including like good evening so i'm sakura I'm the founder of Girls Stop Shanghai and my major job is a fashion designer. Girls Stop Shanghai is like a female community that I found last year for uh, mainly for girls to get together and share and help each other. And this time for the outbreak, Girls Up Shanghai came up with Bieda Nuhai. We have this plan called Firefly Plan and we do the donation and help for those female hospital care, like hospital personnel to donate a period pad and also this sort of kind of stuff. And this event lasts to now is already a month. We already have up more than 20 or 30 hospital, health caring center, medical helping team and all this like people, like female especially, work in Wuhan. Hi, I'm Jing, and I'm a GPS postdoc fellow at NYU Shanghai. So I started teaching in Shanghai from last semester. My research is about Muslims in China. During the coronavirus outbreak, I started this project called Sinophobia Tracker with my friend, Lili, who is now in Tübingen studying archaeology. Nice to talk to everyone. Since you are speaking, let's talk a little bit more in detail about the project that you started with your friend Lily, right? Um, so okay. final phobia tracker, um, can you briefly just talk about why you started it? What motivated you? The biggest motivation was actually the death of Dr. Li Wenliang. I remember I didn't sleep well that night. I realized much information was being deleted and is still being deleted uh, very fast online regarding how fast the coronavirus is progressing and what people are affected and the results and you know all those kind of a chain effects. So when I saw that, I was in a moment of realizing, okay, lots of the memories 
they are not even the memories. They were what's happening then were quickly forgotten before we realize it. That was the first one that motivates me to document something. And then because I, my research is about the traumatic memory of the Muslims in Northwest China. So I was particularly keen on documenting what's traumatic for people, even from a hundred years back until today. And with this kind of large incident that un quite unexpected, I talked with my friend Lily in Germany and we realized there's a surge of sinophobia or more generally racism and xenophobia against not just Chinese, but East Asian in general during the coronavirus outbreak. So we thought this is going to be forgotten very soon, just as what's happened during SARS. But there was actually quite strong racist reaction during SARS toward East Asian as well. So I thought that was uh, two realizations made us to start this project. The purpose why did I came up with this idea is because, as I said before, I run this platform called Girls Up Shanghai. What can we do to help with those people there? Doctors, nurses, they, they work in, in the hospital and stuff. By thinking of this, I realized that actually through this platform, I could help. I could help with those girls, those female workers, those nurses, female doctor in the Hubei, in Wuhan to supply those stuff. We could do like a nurse kit. In the kit, it has like period pad, it has temples, it has like pants washing in one kit. And then I talked to Alice because I was the um, follower of Yeda Nuhai. I think this is a really good platform. If I want to do this plan, and I apparently I would need someone or some platform to help me. I need everyone's help. And Alice just said yes immediately. Everyone, every girls I talked to at the beginning, everyone say yes. And everyone asked me like, so what's your plan? What you going to do it? Girls in different positions, girls in different company, different friends, they're all trying to help out. Use their own power, use do as much as they could do to help us out. So that's why I could get all this help from everyone. And just to give a little bit of contact to those audience who are probably not so familiar with the number of make up more than half of the doctors of the front line in this outbreak and more than 90% of the nurses are women and 5% of them are pregnant, right? And according to the most updated number that I saw today released by the National Health um, Commission, there are more than 42,000 of medical workers dispatched from all over China to assist with the containment and treatment efforts in Hubei province and more than 28 thousand of them are women, which is two thirds of the medical force. And so for female medical workers on the front line, they kind of have to endure this double layers of risks, one being the risk of being infected, um, exposure to, to the virus, and the second being uh, their needs not being fulfilled. Um, and when we talk about their needs being overlooked, especially in the earlier days, why do you think there is this overlook or lack 
of emphasis on female medical workers' needs because we see, for example, news articles saying female nurses and doctors posting calls for help online, saying that they need, for example, pads and you know other hygiene products, and they are later criticized by their supervisors at the hospital, saying that they lack the spirit of devotion. Right. So before all these campaigns like yours. Sakura and Alex, before all those campaigns, people were kind of lacking this awareness that this is very important and this, is, should, this should be listed as one of the essential goods and supplies that is definitely needed in the locked down cities. Can you, can three of you share a little bit of your thoughts on, you know, why was there this um, initial overlook of female needs from female medical workers? The system is not that well made. In many cases, not only in this outbreak, that the normal like require and need of female is not being seen or not being focused on. So before I answer that question, I actually wanted to share why this intensity of criticism and why this volume of criticism and why now because from what I see, this neglect of female feminine needs or it's, it's nothing new. But somehow, at this time, become a breakthrough. I thought about why that is, and maybe it's because of at times of crisis, people tend to have, have a heightened sense of sensitivity to injustices, and also that combined with this multi-layered unfair treatment faced by female medical workers. So together it instigated what we ended up seeing online, the rage, the anger, and the cause of action as well. So in terms of why, like why the pattern, why, why this is the case, the Im especially the images of the female medical workers getting their heads shaved, that image is very strong and it reminds, it really struck a chord because it reminds people of this pattern in history where women's body is used and manipulated for a bigger cause. And that essentially comes down to gender structure and uh, a male-dominant you know, social structure. You know, there's, no avoiding say, there's no avoiding saying those words and also the word patriarchy. So um, I think in our culture, in our current gender culture, women are always put on this pedestal for being the guardians of morality or, or honor. So it's like being a statue. A statue is to be worshiped, but when you think about what a statue does, it's completely passive and static. It doesn't do anything. And it doesn't get to decide what is being done to it. These female medical workers who got their heads shaved, especially the ones captured on camera. So their bodies get requisitioned by propaganda so we can worship them. But the worshiping is not in the service of these women, but in the service of a bigger narrative. And if we, if we broaden that, we can see another parallel be, be, between this phenomenon and also uh, the concept known as the eternal feminine. Um, I, I don't know if many of you know the audience is familiar with that 
concept. So it's from this um, uh, liter literally work, uh, Faust, written by Gold. Um, so it's this essentialist archetype of women as graceful and holy and the virtuous. So the eternal feminine is to serve mankind and to lift men's virtue and spirit upwards. These feminine entities, like they're almost like goddesses, but they're not real. The eternal feminine, I think is meant to be a praise, but it's actually not a realistic portrayal of real women bodies because these feminine bodies, they don't leak or bleed. Uh, they don't discharge, they don't even urinate. So this holiness or sanctity of the female body itself is propaganda. Mm. So that's the same thing as we see in women's representation in the media. On one hand, these female medical workers, their work is sensationalized as self-sacrificing, as virtuous, but on the other hand, their physical needs are overlooked. So these female bodies, they are hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. I think that's because the real female body doesn't really do what the eternal feminine is expected to do, which is to lift up man or mankind spiritually. So it's no use to pay attention to it. The underlying reason for the misrepresentation or underrepresentation of women's bodies in media comes down to this, this consistent unwillingness to firstly see women's body mm. and then secondly to acknowledge and respect their needs as equal to men and not less just because men don't have the same needs. But when we think about the men who are also working to fight against the coronavirus, no one is calling them the most beautiful warriors, right? And when it comes to women, there's always so much emphasis on their appearance, their beauty, their femininity. And when we report those women performing their professional duties in their professional role as medical doctors, nurses, social workers, volunteers, police officers, um, they're often portrayed as making a sacrifice at the expense of their duty, uh, their, their duty in, in a private sphere as mothers, daughters, wives. And Jean, um, feel free to jump in too, because I remember, you know, we are in the same WeChat group with two other common friends. And one day, one of them asked in the group, you know, why is there so much media coverage on women's hair, but not their need for hygiene products? And what she said back then um, is that it seems to her that whether it's the um, over-reporting of uh, women having their hair cut or the under-reporting of women's actual needs, just like Alex, what you were saying about hyper-visibility and lack of visibility, um, both of those two narratives are treating women and their bodies as a kind of trouble, right? So I wonder, Jing, if you can share um, a little bit of your thoughts on that too. One text that I taught last semester is Tony Barlow's text, which traces the discursive shift of what is being considered or constructed as a woman in PRC in the 20, uh, in modern China, basically. And uh, I think she would definitely agree with Alex with what she just said. Uh, and also you, Joyce, about how women is being constructed as the other in a private sphere versus 
the men or the uh, masculine in the public and political domains. And women are always relational concepts, like in relation to the father, in relation to the husband, and etc. It goes on. But I, I want to point out two um, minor issues here. One is I think this mixture of women warrior and women as beautiful as consumers in a society and it's really interesting here because if we remember it is not the Goethe's idea of the eternal feminine that precedes our generation during the 70s 60s 50s it was the idea of women as a working class who could be as equal as men who could hold up half of the sky and at that time, maybe our grandparents and mothers, aunts, aunties, they had experienced that period. So even for, for example, for the leaders, the officials who were responsible for turning down the sanitary paths of the women, or who maybe um, gave <laughs> approval to shaving women's uh, hair, the, the younger generation's women, nurses, um, some of them were women. And they would think this kind of discourse is, is legitimate because we could hold up half of the sky and we can be warriors for the country, for the state. I'm not uh, legitimizing their um, discourses here or any of those policies, but I just want to point out that it's always a conflict of different ways of imagining women in our society. And sometimes they can be in conflict with each other. So we often find either it's on the one end of the spectrum or the, on the other end. However, they actually all coexisted in our public sphere. And second is um, while we pay lots of attention to the, say, the uh, women nurses, doctors, we actually overlook other minor biases, which are equally important. For example, when the um, hospitals were quickly constructed in Wuhan to accept more patients, the images shown or circulating in media, always the male workers. However, we all know that on the side, actually in the very images that we saw, we all often overlook those female workers and those people who are in the whole team, who are providing for the people who are working, they were overlooked. So this is not just a gender issue, it's a class issue as well. And sometimes if we only focus on one side, it, it makes us blind to other aspects there. And I think this is something quite important to keep in mind when it comes to talk about not just as a women's issue, but in fact, it's an intersection of different kinds of questions there. There is maybe a little bit more media coverage um, of women um, with more uh, resources and uh, women in positions of power, while, for example, women as sanitation workers, women who are working at construction sites for the Leishenshan and Huoshenshan hospitals are less visible, right? And today I was reading this article and there was the data from a 2018 report on migrant workers. And the number there says that women actually make up 34.8% of the whole 
migrant worker population. And the article was a piece that features um, a couple of female construction workers um, that worked um, during the Lunar New Year um, that, you know, helped build the hospitals there. I also, you know, I was listening to a podcast and um, this person said something that I really, really was inspired by. She's saying that um, every screen is also a panel. Uh, in Chinese, uh, so while we see what's shown on the screen, uh, you know, the screen is a panel that blocks what's behind it, right? So when we see something on the screen, we will always have to question what narratives are presented and what are underrepresented. Either of you can share a little bit more about what other voices are underheard during the outbreak, other than, you know, women with less power and women in maybe lower socioeconomic status. Who else and what other identities um, are not so fairly represented in, in the media coverage of the outbreak? I'll talk about something that's broadly circulating. Um, and then maybe um, Alex and Sakura have more other examples. But one thing actually quite inspired me about female's voice is the writer, Fang Fang, based in Wuhan. So she is one that I've been tracing her diaries, things maybe she started writing. Her, her diaries was blocked quite a few times and she was even... Um, abuse or kind of cyber bullied online in Weibo. So at that time, it also made me fully aware of the potential of a female voice. Of course, she's not in, not presenting her as a woman writer, like, you know, a female writer who write about her bodies or her identity as a woman. But I think it is exactly this kind of sense of responsibility that she has as a woman, as a writer, that makes us highly aware of what's going on and being critical of what's going on. So that is one thing, um, although people I'll talk about her as generally a writer, a writer with a conscience. I still want to point out that she is probably one of the most widely read writers during the coronavirus, and I would proudly to say she's a woman. I've been also following this um, girl's diary. She lives in Wuhan. She's not from there, but um, she's been documenting her ex daily experience. So. She goes out for a walk every day and she interviews sanitation workers, as Joyce just mentioned. So the woman, her whole family, her husband and her son, her daughter-in-law, they all work in sanitation. Her husband has a limp, so that's the only job he can get. And her son and daughter-in-law just had a baby. So every day after her shift, she goes back home and cook for the family, especially for the, new, the young family. So basically, basically her second shift, uh, this kind of stories, they're not heavily featured in mainstream media. 
But to be fair, I think the media have done a fairly good job this time with ordinary people's lives, especially during the earlier phase of the outbreak before the censorship crackdown. So we actually saw a lot of ordinary people's lives. They are not heroes or leaders, but you know people like this. And I think sanitation workers, their needs. We've seen several initiatives of, for example, donating face masks to sanitation workers. I actually think I've I've noted some exchange or sharing of resources across class barriers, which is really good to see. So I like to believe in this return of conscience. I don't know how long it will last, but. Again, in times of crisis, people tend to band together and remember that we are in- interdependent of each other. So these are people whose death is not officially counted in the uh, coronavirus statistics. But in doing that, that means their life, their death is not even grieved properly. When their life is not grieved properly, is it alive at all? Uh, because I have been reading Judy Butler's precarious life. And to quote, she said, uh, when a life is not grievable, it is not quite a life. It does not qualify as a life and is not worth a note. Although she's talking about post-911 America, I think this quote is very relevant here. Alex, you mentioned that some media did a quite a good job in terms of reporting those personal narratives and um, reporting on those ordinary people's lives. And I remember reading uh, quite a couple of articles that talks about lives of people living with HIV. I was glad to read that there are uh, quickly uh, groups and networks of volunteers that organized among themselves to help deliver the medication for people with HIV. And that links to my um, last question before I open the floor to the audience for their questions, which is what role has civil society played during this outbreak? And I want to ask this because in my impression, the last time when our country has encountered such a big catastrophe at a national level was in 2008, when Wenchuan earthquake happened. That was in the year of 2008, and a lot of people uh, have claimed the year of 2008 to be the year zero for China's civil society. As we saw how many um, social organizations and volunteers groups have risen up and contributed tremendously to the disaster relief efforts and such effective and efficient ways. Now that we're in 2020, after this outbreak started, of course, we also see the power of civil society and how many, many um, organizations, individuals organized among themselves for the relief effort. And we also see what might happen, what consequence there can be when the state tries to repress the energy from the civil society. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about, you know, what role you think civil society has played in this outbreak and then how does this outbreak might impact the relationship between the state and the society in China in the future? I think, like you said, we've had a year zero in 20, 2008. Um, I wasn't in China at the time, but from what I saw since I came back, which is three years ago, um, I keep hearing people like harking back to 2008, like some kind of old golden age, which means that, you know, it's past time, it's, it's no longer. So I don't actually believe in 
the lasting effect of this outbreak in terms of civil society conscience. But I do see some hope in the people, in the way people treat activists or idealists, because being politically active or conscious has been something that's almost like ridiculed in our society. We recently did an interview with this young man. He's only 19. He left for the States in January to do his undergrad. And he also runs this online philosophy platform. Most of the members, they're high school students, but they're, they're all like philosophy enthusiasts. At the onset of the outbreak, he, with his two friends, they wrote a 30,000 character long essay. It's called Structural Reflection of coronavirus or the outbreak. It got a lot of traction before it got taken down. But in, in the interview, this young guy, he said, the only reason I get to do what I do to be so immersed in my passion is because I'm from a privileged family. So he can pursue philosophy when his fellow students have to, you know, study, I don't know, physics or to, to pass the university entrance exam and he doesn't need to. So he's very highly aware of that, and he thinks it only makes sense for him to give back. So this is his way of giving back, to use words and media as his ammunition, and he hopes more people can do that. So some, someone like him, he was always sort of subject to challenging or scolding or ridicule before the outbreak, just for being political at all. But I have noted a change in public opinions of people like him. So there's now more appreciation and more recognition for say, let's say idealists or political involved minds and people. So I hope that's gonna last longer, that attitude it will last longer than maybe, you know, the relief projects themselves and potentially change some more minds. Well, first of all, I must say I'm a pessimist in the short run, but maybe a positivist in the long run. <laughs> so in, a, in the same way, I'm a bit pessimistic about the emergence of a so-called civil society currently in China. Because yes, in 2008, I remember very clearly, I was in Sichuan seven days before the earthquake. And then when I returned from there after a week, the earthquake hit. So um, that left an indelible memory on me. Some of my friends were from Sichuan and Chongqing and uh, a couple of them even went back to become volunteers over there. And also you can see lots of journalists followed up and lots of international aids and tensions came in. So that was why at that moment, people thought there was a spring for the civil society at that time. But we have always to go back, one, to the changing political environments in China after 2013, that's one. And a second, to the meaning of the civil society or public spheres in general. This is a term, uh, this is more of a Habermasian term originated in Europe and when Habermas uh, or other scholars like Isaac Berlin was talking about the civil society and public spheres. They were thinking about a model based on, um, uh, on a society regulated by a fairly well-instituted legal system as well as bureaucratic system. 
in our society when it comes to the separation of power or the execution of law. We all know that there are lots of problems there. Therefore, when we apply the idea of a civil society in China, we always have to notice that there are certain sectors that do not function the way that as they function in the Western society. Like in the civil society, it's very important how journalists and the media plays the role. However, uh, in China, we can say there currently, of course, uh, the media plays a very important role. That's why maybe Alex and you and I are being a bit pessimistic on this side because there's lots of censorship going down. And if you're interested, I would recommend this uh, website called Citizen Lab. So they recently released a paper about how censorship started to function even three weeks before Wuhan was locked down. So you can see that how effective the censorship system is. However, on the other hand, we also have to expand the definition of civil society in China, because if there is a heavily controlled system there, there's always cracks and gaps at different levels. So here it is the cracks and the gaps that let out, for example, the message from the whistleblower like Dr. Li Wenliang, or the citizen journalists like Chen Qiushi, who um, is still missing now. But I think there are people who actually knew how to use media, especially new media, to self-educate and to become citizens. So in that sense, I wouldn't say there will be in the near future an organized movement, which is highly unlikely, but I still believe the civic education um, due to these kind of emergencies, crisis, outbreaks, and um, tragedies that we start to realize that we don't act as ordinary people, as citizens, then one day, this will come to us, this will happen to us as well. So in that sense, I would say, don't lose hope, but always be, be careful about the context where we are living in and try to work through it if, not, if we're not powerful enough to break it, but at least we can always try. I actually witnessed how Weibo developed social media, how it works at the beginning when people, when Wenchuan, when the earthquake happened, or when, when every public issue happened, how this social media thing work on its function and how it affects every, everyone's life. For this outbreak, I could see a lot of people like, start to make some noise start to speak from the bottom of their hearts, start to stand for the truth and speak for the truth and start to like use this power that they got with the social media thing to, to earn the awareness or to say whatever they think is just and is right. So this is how it works, how this like social, like how people use their own power to, to bring up what they want and what they need and what they request for. Also for the Firefly plan as well, if I'm not on social media, if I'm not team up with Hai, then not much people will know that what I'm doing, not much people will come and join and help us. I think most of like, the credit is because Hai help us 
also a lot of solid plan through this platform. This is the audience really specific. Who will follow Vietnam New High with their article? Girls mostly. Also people, boys as well, that care about the same thing and have the same belief with us. With the 50 minutes or so left for this event, let's give it to our audience to ask questions. Great. So I was wondering about Li Wenlang, who was mentioned earlier. He's constantly being referred to as a whistleblower, but didn't he only share information relating to, like, with his friend group from medical school? And, I mean, he didn't exactly go out on society to raise alarms. I mean, not saying he's, he didn't do the right thing, but I'm just a bit confused by the magnitude and how he's being treated as such a heroic figure, say. First of all, um, yes. He shared information not with the general public that we all know. Uh, he shared information with his friends who are also doctors and also with his family members, right? At that time, he wasn't saying or confirming whether there was a novel coronavirus as we know it now. But he said that, if I remember correctly, we are having some SARS-like viruses and you all have to be careful and also how his um, warning did get to the attention of the censors as well as the hospital officials because before he sent out the warnings people in Wuhan were actually starting to notice especially the medical professionals, the doctors and nurses who were on the front line. However, most of them were afraid to speak out, even to send out those informations. So first of all, we have to say, um, one, we have to respect that his professional knowledge, although that was at the early stage, still he had a sense of what was going on. But second, we have to acknowledge that he's actually also an ordinary person. Maybe that aspect actually make us to relate to him even more than if he were, say, Zhong Nanshan or these kind of people. Because the, Dr. Li Wenliang was afraid of speaking out to the public, however, he still wanted to help within his capacity. So he started to warn his close friends and family members first. And we all could recognize that aspect in him, in ourselves. Like, would, if this could happen to me, what would I do? And in his case, he chose to speak out instead of being silent. That is something quite admirable. And later when his story was wider known, I think that aspect of him being just an ordinary person who cared about his family and his friends, who could resonate in every one of us, that gets his story really being recognized by most of the people. I think that is one aspect that we have to keep in mind. And then there are different layers of Dr. Li Wenliang's story there. Well, we all know he was called to the police station and he signed that paper, Xun Jie Shu, right? And in that paper, he also signed it. However, afterwards, when the journalist started to approach him, well, he was bedridden and he was sick for a long time. He was still answering to the journalist who contacted him and tried to spread or raise awareness among the general public. I think at that level, Dr. Lin Wang Liang, 
um, is both an ordinary person just like us, but he also he's also a conscious citizen and professional doctor that deserves our respect in that sense. Thanks for raising that question because I think it's really important to keep in mind even ordinary people can do unordinary things. To me, a whistleblower is really just someone that speaks the truth against oppression. Under pressure, they still speak the truth. And that's what Li Wenliang did. I think he was also being responsible when he first chose to sort of spread the news or spread his um, observation within a limited circle. But he was being integral to his professional ethics. And later on, he did not cave in, insisted on telling the truth. And that qualifies him as a whistleblower. And also what Jing said about a whistleblower usually being an ordinary person, I think that's rather important because if you have the platform, if you are giving, say, a loudspeaker, you're not blowing a whistle, you're just, you're speaking through a loudspeaker. A whistleblower somehow implies that you don't have the platform or, or resource, you don't have a loudspeaker, that's why you blow a whistle. Thank you so much to Jing, Sakura, and Alex, and thank you to everyone who has stayed this late for this event. This is pretty much the end of the event, and I want to thank and acknowledge everyone who's still working in Hubei. Relief efforts, whether they're men or women, and just say happy International Women's Day to all of you. Thank you for listening. This is Uncovered. Again, our website is uncoveredinitiative.home.blog. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Medium by searching Uncover.2020. We are also on WeChat with the name Uncover Ren. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment. If you have a question, feel free to email us at 2020.uncover at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Take care and until next time.